G'day humans, welcome to the Safe Space for Dangerous Ideas, and what more dangerous idea is there than the idea that you may not actually be you, the way that you think of yourself as being. I mean, what even are you anyway, in the big grand philosophical sense? You're a homo sapien, you have a conscious experience of your own life, but do you think of yourself as a spiritual being? There's that hoary old cliche that I rather like, that we're not human beings having a spiritual experience, we're spiritual beings having a human experience, which is all very crystal dangling and sort of Oprah, but nonetheless touches on something about what it feels like to be alive, which is that we don't just feel like meat, but if we're not just meat, what are we? I'm not talking about a religious explanation. We're not little fairy angels with wings inhabiting human bodies. So how is it that matter comes together and becomes you? And are you actually the thing that you think you are? Or is your sense of your own self kind of an illusion that consciousness conjures up, as increasingly neuroscientists seem to think it is? What the hell does all that mean? Well, I wanted to know. So we got Anil Seth to explain. One of the world's leading neuroscientists, Anil's book is called Being You. A New Science of Consciousness. I loved it. It was a Sunday Times top 10 bestseller in the UK. It was a book of the year from The Economist and The New Statesman and Bloomberg Business. Uh, It was a book of the week from The Guardian. Uh, He's given a TED talk on the main stage at The Big Big TED, not TEDx, uh, and that has had more than 13 million views. It's one of TED's most popular science talks. Uh, I don't really need to go through Anil, all of Anil's like, you know, qualifications. He's basically at the University of Sussex at the moment, where he's a professor of cognitive and computational neuroscience. But he also is a co-director of various sort of centers for consciousness science and advanced research on brain, mind, and consciousness scattered all over the world. Um, and his new project is in trying to understand whether or not each of our experience of subjective things is or is not the same. Like, you know, the whole, I'm sure that when you're in your teens, you had those stoned conversations where you go, but wait, like, what if when you you eat a mango, it's like not the same as the taste that I taste when I eat a mango? What if like when I eat a mango, it actually tastes like what to you is lamb, but I just think that it's the same mango? Yeah, all of that. He's trying to nut out whether or not that's true and uh, what the differences between our experiences of the world are. Uh, If you're interested in all that stuff, you will love as I did this chat with the one and only Anil Seth. I mean, should we just start at the at the, at the most obvious point, which is which is what is consciousness? What is consciousness? This is it's a good place to start. It's a difficult place to start because in the end, that's where we want to get to in trying to understand consciousness with with science and philosophy. So we can only start, I think. I mean, we have to start somewhere. And the way I start usually is with the definition from a a philosopher called Thomas Nagel, who said in a very famous paper, he said, for a conscious organism, there is something it is like to be that organism. It feels like something to be a conscious creature. It, It feels like something to be me. It feels like something to be you. And probably for many other animals as well, it feels like something Mm. to be that creature. It's not just sort of neurons whirring in the subjective dark. Consciousness is 
any kind of subjective experience whatsoever. It's the difference between being awake and aware as we both are now and being dead or or under general anesthesia when you know your your sense of self and sense of the world is completely obliterated. That's what consciousness is. I like that. And I also like the thought experiment that it leads to logically which, of if you could snap your fingers and cease to exist and suddenly pop into existence as me, if you, Anil, could become me, that would be interesting. I mean, that would be an interesting thing to have happen. And it, it would, would also probably be interesting if you could snap your fingers and you could suddenly be a monkey or if you could snap your fingers even and suddenly become an ant, maybe. That would be a psychedelic thing to experience. But if you could snap your fingers and become a mug, that wouldn't be interesting at all, presumably. No, I think, you know I think I mean? there, would, there would be nothing. That. Nothing would happen. It would be the end yeah, of, it would be for, for the end of experience. Whereas that, and then there are interesting edge cases, like what would it mean to say that you could snap your fingers and become a mollusk, for example? Like, would that be the same as death? Uh, I don't know, but you know, it's clearly something. It's clearly different from being a rock, and it's clearly different from being a monkey. Yes, exactly. I also think you can extend that thought experiment a little bit further and say, "What if you could snap your fingers and be like you in a month, or in a year, or a year ago, or five years ago?" Because mm. we also have this other deep-seated intuition that there's some essence of self, some unchanging immutable essential self that persists over time and that in, in some religious traditions might survive death but i think this is probably wrong <clears throat> excuse me i think this is probably wrong as well and, and many traditions point this out too like buddhism points this out that the the experience of being a self is always changing too but we don't necessarily experience the change but in that mm -hmm. case, the fundamental point remains that there would there is still something it would be like to be me in five years, I hope, or certainly was me five years ago. Well, let's since you raised the self, let's talk about that. The I mean, I have five year old twins, and we travel a lot, and uh, occasionally people will hear this and say, "Oh, you shouldn't, you should be waiting until they're old enough. They're not even going to remember any of this. So, what's the point?" And I will retort with something along the lines of, well, I mean, the point is that they're having these experiences and that these are experiences that they are actually having and I'm having good times with them and they're having good times with me and they may not remember them, but so what? I mean, my father who's getting Alzheimer's doesn't remember anything either, but that doesn't mean that good experiences aren't better than worse experiences. And then they scoff and think that's all a bit philosophical and uh, say, you know, you should be, should be waiting until they're 10 to do all this. Do they have a point? I don't think so. I think it's perfectly valid to value experience in the moment. And also, in your specific example, the fact that they might not remember it later doesn't mean it hasn't changed them in some way that will be of benefit to them later. I think we right. put too much emphasis on this kind of autobiographical memory, the memory of things and events that have happened to us as almost the totality of what being a self is but it's it's much more than that you know the, the self is this whole bundle of experiences that are related to the body to emotion to plans for the future and memories of the past for sure but but much more than that and by having experiences of a particular kind 
you know, that can change your overall experience of being a self in the future, regardless of whether you, you remember it or not. And you're absolutely right that the other end of the lifespan in, in dementia and Alzheimer's, there's still something essentially there about a person, even if they can't remember many episodes from their life mm. anymore. I'm sure you, you must feel that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but then that does bring us to the thornier question that you were pointing to with the thought experiment about, you know, if I could transplant my experience into the mind that I had a year ago, would that be, I mean, you didn't quite phrase it this way, but would that be me in any meaningful sense? And what about 10 years ago? And what if I could go back to being five years old? In what sense is that still me or like you know my earliest concrete memories i suppose between you know the ages of sort of eight and 12 where you really have a uh, and the first memories that are not just grabs but a coherent biographical stretches then to what extent was that me it's a very provocative question i don't think there's a very good answer to it it seems obvious until you start thinking about it that the person who was there the five-year-old you was you just however many years ago but all the cells in your body would have changed by then replaced with new cells and the experience of being that person is likely to be to be very very different indeed now, i do think that this there's there is a thread you know, there's a thread of experience because we typically don't sort of teleport ourselves to completely different environments uh, or suddenly wake up with totally new bodies. Though versions of these, both of these things happen, right? I mean, people can have life-changing injuries that change their their body or can you know, move country. Um, but there's still a continuity over time of experience. But the experience of being the subject of that experience, the experience of being a self, I think changes a lot more than we typically recognize. And if we and were ever mean? able, you know, if we were ever able to go back and, and meet our ourselves at a much earlier age, I think we might find ourselves to be more different than we expect now. Mm. And but what do you mean by the experience of being a self? Because I mean, I think there are two things that people are talking about when we're talking when we're having these kinds of conversations. There's the content of my brain all the explicit things that I'm thinking, the reactions that I'm having as a five-year-old to what my father is telling me and the thoughts and interpretations and all that. And obviously I think everyone would concede that if you were suddenly teleported into yourself at a previous, in a previous part of time of your life, all of that would be different. I mean, you would lack all of the memories of anything that's happened in the interim. You would have different relationships to objects and ideas and to the people around you. But I think, most people's common sense idea is that this other thing, which is this sort of flickering flame of consciousness, this the fact that, as you say, that it is like something at all to be me, that that would be the same. That like the fact that I'm still in existence, having experiences at all, that's the same subjective line that carries through from my earliest moments until my death. And spiritual people call that a soul. Secular people might not, but I think they're still talking about the same thing existing. Is that actually a thing? Well, this really is the question at issue. And it may seem as though 
there is. It may seem as though there's this thread of subjectivity that is always the same, even though the things around it might change. But philosophers going back to, well, in the Western tradition, going back to the Scottish Enlightenment philosopher, David Hume, pointed out that that when you really look for this thing in your experience, when you search in your own mind for what this thread is that never changes, it's very, very difficult. And he thought impossible to actually find. Now, all there is at any moment is a perception of something or other, whether it's something from the outside, the feeling of wind against your face or a rumbling of noise in the distance or something from the inside. It's an emotion bubbling up or the sense of your body being in a particular position or a fleeting memory. There are just changing perceptions. And however hard you look, it's very hard and perhaps impossible to identify the thing that you think underlies or is invariant as these other perceptions come and go. And that you know, that's the central thesis of many Buddhist traditions as well. The impermanence of the self, the ever-changing nature of the self. And here I think there really is an interesting convergence between Western philosophy, modern neuroscience, and, and some of these Eastern traditions that gets underneath some of the more immediate ways in which we might think of the self as this persistent essence. So if there are only subjective experiences, that still then raises the question of onto what are those, like in what context are those subjective experiences happening? What is the, what is the canvas on which these experiences are being drawn? And I guess that then is the, I mean, the common sense subjective experience is that that is the, the self, that life might be a series of experiences projected by a projector onto a canvas, but that blank canvas doesn't change. But the Buddhist interpretation, as I understand it, would be that the canvas itself is an illusion that's conjured up by the existence of the experiences, that there is no self which is having the experiences. There are just experiences and that we're all in some vast cosmic swamp of awareness, uh, you know, out of which the pinprick of my individual identity can be constructed as an artifice in order to make my life more manageable, but that there's no real kind of ontological meaning to, to me as a, as a, as a discrete, uh, like locus of consciousness in comparison to anybody else or anything else in the cosmos. But you're saying that Modern neuroscience also points to this conclusion, but that doesn't sound like a very modern neuroscientific uh, explanation the way that I just articulated it. But I think they, they do align. So that there is indeed this idea that what we when we experience being a self normally, these many different elements of it, this feeling of my body in a particular position, this feelings of emotion, of maybe things like hunger and thirst, feelings of volition and agency that we might typically describe as free will and my memories of the past and plans for the future all seem to be somehow bound up together in what I would describe as as me well that's who I am but we know from from medicine from neuroscience that these different aspects of the self can all be separated they can come apart in different ways in different psychiatric and neurological illness and we can manipulate them in the lab the fact that they seem to come together seamlessly in normal existence 
doesn't mean that there is ontologically, as you say, sort of in objective reality, a thing that is the self that has these properties as being necessarily always unified. The self can change. The experience of self can change. It's just that we we don't. And I think evolution has designed our brains so that we we ought not to experience the self as changing, as possibly decomposable in all these different ways. It's kind of useful for the organism to experience the self as as this unified unified thing, even though well, that's what's the not what it is. What's the difference then? I mean, if, if the self is a subjective experience, then isn't that kind of tautological to say that, or isn't that kind of defining away the problem or begging the question in some way to say, like, the, it's an, we, we carry this illusion through our lives that we have this self, well, maybe that's just what selfhood is, the, the illusion, in which case I'll take it. I think that's a more reasonable way to think about it, actually. To, the word illusion I always have a bit of a problem with because it almost suggests that there's, there's a correct way to perceive things other than how you are perceiving things. Like This is often how we think about visual illusions. You, know, you look at two lines, they're different lengths, but they're really the same length. And so what you see is an right. illusion. I prefer to think of something like the self. In fact, all of our experience, rather than being an illusion, it's, it's kind of a construction. It's not identical to something else or, or, or just mismatching something else in the case of an illusion. It's, it's something that the brain and the body produce that is useful. And it's very useful for us to experience self because it provides the organism with sort of a unifying um, architecture in which it can organize its, its behavior, its actions, its goals, its desires. And it's useful in the same way that it's useful for us to experience anything at all. We experience colors out there in the world, not because colors exist as part of objective mind-independent reality. You know, they don't. There's just electromagnetic radiation at different wavelengths. But we experience colors because evolution has latched on to this way of making sense of electromagnetic radiation as useful for guiding the behavior of organisms. And when organisms get sufficiently complex, this experience of self may be doing something similar. It's giving the organism a kind of way of planning its future actions that that is just that makes sense for the survival prospects of the organism. What is the scientific evidence for this rather than the uh, philosophical speculation? There's only so far the scientific evidence can go for something like this. I think it starts with observations of uh, people following brain injuries where they might lose certain aspects of selfhood while retaining others. And this, give, this is a clue that then the self is not necessarily unified in the way we normally experience it, that it can come apart. So, for instance, there are people who will lose the ability to lay down new memories in a, in a way that's even more dramatic than happens in, in Alzheimer's. There are, there are some cases of people with such severe amnesia that they live in a kind of permanent present of a few seconds. And so every new moment is, is a new reality for them. Yeah. Can you tell the story, Anil, of the, is it was an Austrian composer who had incredibly severe 
brain injury and amnesia, and his wife wrote a book about his condition. Yeah, it was it was actually an English uh, English composer. He's still alive. His name is Clive uh, Waring, and in the nineteen eighties, he suffered a brain infection, an encephalitis, which destroyed almost completely his temporal lobes. These are parts of the brain that are that are absolutely necessary for laying down new memories. And the virus just wiped these these parts of the brain out, but not much more. And so he he survives and he enters the state where indeed he cannot remember more than a few seconds at a time. And how this is manifest is that for many years, he seems to be eternally in a state of surprise about his condition. He keeps a diary and in his diary, you can just see repeated entries that say, I am awake, I am finally awake for the first time I'm awake now and he will cross out all the preceding entries and this goes on for page after page after page and his wife is there all the time and he remembers his wife he remembers that he's married to her because it happened much longer ago well actually it didn't happen that much before his illness but they knew each other for, for much longer ago and he still feels his love for his wife that's undiminished but he is in this constant state of confusion about where she's been, what's going on. He's just woken up and he doesn't now, he doesn't know how long he's been away for, but he hasn't been away at all. He just can't remember. And then at one point, his wife has the idea of taking him back to his choir. So he was a, he was a composer. He was an organist. And uh, he actually, I think was responsible for a lot of the music on BBC Radio 3, classical music at the time in the 80s. And he was taken back to his choir and he was able to conduct his choir in a piece of music. And he seemed, so the reports go, he seemed like himself again. He was fully in the moment during Mm. that time. But of course, afterwards, he couldn't remember it at all. So this case is just one example of how something that we might think on the surface is absolutely necessary for the presence of a recognizable self just isn't. And then you can go through all the other aspects that we might think are fundamental and necessary for selfhood. And we can usually find examples of people who, through illness or injury, have lost that specific thing. Yet in other ways, perhaps in all other ways, they are still the people they were. Hmm. Anil, am I misremembering his anecdote that in his journal, when he would scribble things out, he would then also write, ignore the last bit, that wasn't really me, this is the real me now. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, no, below exactly. It would be like, no, 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 this is me, this is me right now, this is the real me, and then that would be scribbled out as well. I mean, yeah. that sounds like a hell. I mean, that sounds like a, it's like, it reminds me of the movie Memento, you know, where you're constantly waking up into a new existence, untethered from everything, finding yourself anew and inheriting the baggage of all of these imposter yous who came before you, who have no relationship to you. And so your biography is not stitched together as a narrative behind you the way that it is for the rest of us you're just sort of springing into existence as this like <laughs> spirit in the world 
and then you're gone. That's so right. is that is that him? Like, is he the same person in that sense, or is he lots of new people puncturing well, into I mean, existence you, all the time? You could even make the argument that he's more the same person than the rest of us because he isn't laying down these new memories. So maybe he's changing less than than an equivalent him would be who still had this ability to, to remember things. But you're absolutely right about how tormenting it must be. I I do think, uh, trying to remember the, the case history of him, that this very, very short window did lengthen over time. And so there was some adaptation, I think, in his in his life to this, to being in this condition, that it wasn't it wasn't so dramatic. Uh, mm. It became less dramatic, so I think the journal entries with it crossing out did did sort of taper off after a while. But you're you're that's right. That I think you, you you describe it beautifully that it's the stitching that's missing. It's not the experiences themselves. It's the stitching between them that is lost yeah. in a case like Clive's. But that's fascinating. The point that you just made about could it be that he's actually more himself because the fact that those stitches are constantly being severed means that he is being preserved in aspic in a way and he is not being contaminated by recent experience so unlike the rest of us we're all evolving and morphing and changing constantly but he's more the person he was a month ago than i am because the month's intervening events are unknown to him could that mean i mean does that have implications for people who are living with dementia that they they could in some way be a preserved version of themselves i wonder i mean one thing that you see with with people in, in dementia is that they often revert to the memories that become more present to them you know revert to older memories and whether this means they're becoming you know, more their true self I, I i don't know that doesn't seem right to me to put it that way i think i think these these examples, whether it's dementia or Clive Waring, or in fact, you know, you can think of these cases as just an extreme version of what happens with all of us. I don't remember everything that happened in my life. You know, I've got a fairly bad autobiographical memory. Sometimes it requires my friends to tell me you know, what happened at such and such a time. And that's, I think, the the you know the philosophical value of these cases. You can just see them as endpoints of a spectrum that we all live on. It's not that we're fundamentally different. Whether, whether you have a, an episodic autobiographical memory that lasts 30 seconds or, or a couple of weeks, fundamentally doesn't really matter for any claims about what the self really is. Hmm. And this That's idea... Well, to you know, say this, that it, what the self really is sounds to me like you're, you're slipping into the... Uh, what word did you object to last time? Illusion. Uh, like yes. to this binary of what is and what is not. Like I know that as my memory gets worse, as I enter middle age and I look at a photo from 20 years ago and go, oh, where was that? I don't remember that. I, I look at the photo and I feel like Michael J. Fox in Back to the Future looking at himself disappear from a photo of himself in the parallel timeline of the universe and I feel a little piece of me dissolve. So the subjective experience of selfhood for me is contingent on a maximally large bag of memories and experiences. But can we come back to the illusion word and say that that's an illusion? 
Yeah, I, th- I think you, you're right to call me out there. I think this question about you know, what the self really is, is not the right question because it presupposes that there's, there's some kind of answer to that. And I think the best way to approach it is to understand the self as a collection of related experiences that are useful for the organism and that are important for each of us. You know, it, they matter. It's not, it's not that it's not illusion in the sense that there would be some more ideal situation where we didn't experience being a self at all. But it's that this experience does not pick out any unchanging inner essence. Now, the, the, the memory case yeah, is actually, there's one other thing about the memory case is that it sort of gets even more perplexing because when you recall an autobiographical memory, you often change the memory. Now, memory in a human brain is not like memory in a computer. Every time you remember something, you alter it which is why eyewitness testimony can be so unreliable, one reason why it can be so right. unreliable. And this has a consequence, of course, that the more often you, you go back into your past and recall these episodes, then your, your memories that seem to be part of yourself actually become less authentic to what actually happened at the time. So by actively remembering your past, you're changing the story of yourself. Mm. Fascinating. The objection to all of this philosophizing, let me take a materialist version of it, would be, I mean, you can talk until the cows come home about self and selfness and experiences and the self being an illusion and whatever, but all of this is taking place inside the neurons of my own gray matter. And so that's the backdrop against all, which all of this is happening. I mean, my experience, my experience machine, if you're not religious, is located between my ears somewhere. And therefore, all of those experiences are taking place in there. That is what the self is. And just because it experiences things in different ways when it's five years old versus when it's 70 years old, and just because it can get impaired or enhanced by dementia or drugs or whatever, it doesn't change the fact that that is the location of all of my experiences. And therefore that is what I am. Isn't that enough? Well, I don't think so. I think that's, I don't want to deny it. I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I'm, I'm a materialist as well when it comes to to consciousness that all of our experiences depend or at the very least intimately related to what happens within this bony vault of a skull, this massively complex, as you nicely put it, this experience machine inside our skulls. But that's true of all of our experiences. Our, you know, our experience of there being a world out there is also dependent on what happens in the, the neurons inside our brains. So this is, it's true, it's an observation but I don't think it, it goes very far in itself to developing an understanding of what the self is. You know, we know it depends on all these neurons. And in fact, that's, that's what the neuroscientific perspective is based on. You know, we try to understand the, the details, the how and the why. What are these dependencies? Which parts of the brain? What patterns of activity underlie this experience versus that experience? And that will help us refine and understand better how experiences of the world and of the self come about. But that you can't, I don't think, get away with just saying that 
you know, your, your brain is necessary and sufficient for consciousness. So therefore your brain is yourself. Now, I think you, the, the experience of self, the experience of the world, the mind in general, isn't identical to the brain. It's what the brain does in conjunction with the body and the world. Right. So before we dig into that, and I want to get to the big, the big doozy of a question, which is how is it the case that atoms and materials can conjure up a sense of what it's like to be anything at all, let's just um, address the non-materialist or spiritual um, case. So, I mean, m- the vast majority of people in the world and almost everyone throughout history has not believed this materialist vision of the brain but has thought that we're, <clears throat> we're plugged into something. You know, you'll often hear people say, you know, my, I, I can try to look for the people inside my television by taking the television apart, but the television is just tuned in to a frequency, well, used to be, now it comes through a cable, but used to be tuned into a frequency that is putting pictures together. And my brain is like a, a radio or a TV. It's, it's not the location of all of my thoughts. Uh, if I'm a Buddhist, then I might think that I'm swimming in a soup of a sort of a universal consciousness that I can access through things like meditation and oneness and gratitude. If I'm one of the big monotheisms, the big Western monotheisms, then I probably have a more dualistic idea about my soul being something that can outlive my body and have a personal relationship with the creator of the universe. And therefore, these ways of thinking can sort of elide some of the problems um, or sidestep them neatly by just saying, well, you don't have to locate self in the brain. Self may be some sort of an illusion, but ultimately there's something precious and there's, you know, there's a soul that each human has that is in relationship with the universe in a profound way. Is there a way to, how do you address that? With great difficulty. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's a number of different perspectives that you suggest which reflects the the variety of, of different religious and spiritual perspectives on on this issue. Some of them, as you say, have more to do with consciousness in general than with the self specifically. You know that consciousness may be a fundamental property of of the universe, and our brains are somehow smuggling in two very different ideas there, aren't I? Because the, yeah. the Buddhist one, as and I realized is, is the vision of self in the Buddhist one is actually the opposite of the vision of self in, for example, the Christian one. Uh, right. So the, the Christian tradition has, has a much more, sorry. Yeah. The, the Christian tradition has, has a much more definite aspect of, of a, an essence of self, a soul that you know, can persist after death and so on. But so do many other religions too. I mean, that, that aspect of, of a, of a self that survives the death of the body and, and can be reborn. I mean, that you see this in Hinduism as well. You see it in many, many other traditions. And I think that's the aspect of religious traditions that's incredibly hard to reconcile with a scientific viewpoint. Uh, it's, it's harder to reconcile that than this, this more um, general idea that we don't really know what consciousness is. And maybe it's something that's everywhere. Maybe it's something that the brain generates and is tuned into. That's something that's, it's, it's hard to make progress on that question, but it's at least compatible with a lot of what science has discovered and a materialistic philosophy has suggested but the idea that there is a self that can survive the well it's the death of the brain rather than the body and that can potentially reappear and is plugged into something else that's extremely hard to reconcile and from my perspective 
that's something you have to let go of. Right. All right, let's stick with the more plausible of the spiritual claims then, that our, that our brain is tuned into some universal consciousness. Each of us are instantiations of that consciousness where like i suppose the vines of a grape tree or something i'm not a very good botanist so i don't know what the analogy would be but you know maybe that maybe it's a coral reef with individual spores on the coral and it you know but it's we're part of some some meta organism that's invisible to us and so we think of ourselves as being discrete individuals but we're all actually having experiences within the one vast conscious uh matrix um yeah, what, what do you make of that, and does it make it easier or less easy to explain how we're how it's like something to be me? I think it's distracting. I don't think it really adds anything or helps us explain anything. It sort of sweeps the problem away and says, "Okay, it, it's difficult to explain how consciousness can be a property of of physical systems, of biological systems, of brains and bodies." So therefore, it's something that's pre-exists and it's just there and, and we tap into it unless we happen to find in the brain that there's some sort of mechanism that can only be explained as a, an antenna for this whatever it is then it doesn't really help us it just punts the problem down the metaphysical road it's very very difficult the fact that it is very difficult to understand how a physical system could be identical to or give rise to a subjective experience doesn't mean that it's inconceivable that this happens or that there will be an explanation for how this happens. And you can either put your money and your effort on that prospect that there is an explanation in materialistic terms and get on with the job of trying to figure out what that might be or I think you just, you kind of give up and, and say, well, you know, this is something we can't explain. So we give it its own independent reality. And that would be okay if it helped us understand things about the self, about conscious experience in general. But I don't think it really does because everything that we want to understand so far that makes a difference to us in practical terms, like how does our experience change? What affects it? Why is one experience different from another? We can make progress on these kinds of questions by studying the brain, by thinking about the material basis of experience. And we can get a long way, even if we don't close the gap completely, even if there is still some sense of residual mystery about why there should be consciousness at all. Well, I'm and glad so, you're that optimistic <laughs> about, about the, the ability of science. Because, I mean, it sounds like you're being optimistic about the ability of science to explain um, sort of proximate causes of conscious phenomena as they take place in the brain. But what would a good explanation of the hard... In fact, we should probably... Can you explain what the hard problem of consciousness is? Because that's, you know, where we're gonna, what we're going to bump up against. I think this is what we're talking about already, really. So the hard problem of consciousness is uh, a formulation of this challenge of explaining consciousness that, that was put forward by David Chalmers, a philosopher, uh, quite, a while, quite a while ago now, in the 90s. But the idea has been around for thousands of years. 
it's just David crystallized it very nicely. And, and how he put it is something like the following. He said, it's widely accepted that conscious experiences depend on physical systems like brains, but it's just unclear how and why this should be. Why should physical processing, physical interactions give rise to experience at all? It seems objectively unreasonable that this should happen, and yet it happens. So this is the hard problem. A materialist view of nature consists of material things and interactions, whether they're atoms in the void or quarks or some more deeper level of physical reality, such as some foundation of quantum mechanics, whether it's interactions or whatever it might be. There's some description of the universe and consciousness is not built into that description at the most fundamental level. The challenge is given a description of reality that doesn't at one level include consciousness, how do you then get consciousness? How do you get it out of putting the pieces together? And this so if that's the hard, the hard problem of consciousness, what's the, what's the easy problem? The easy problems for, for David Chalmers are all the problems that you can address as a neuroscientist, as a physicist, as, as a whoever you are, without worrying about consciousness at all. Because there is a very simple level at which the brain is just a machine. It's a very complicated machine, but it's a machine. It's, it's you know, Signals come in through the eyes and the ears, neurons fire, other neurons fire, chemicals swish about, and the body does something. Sometimes words are emitted, actions happen. So you can study, you can in principle figure out how the brain works in all its detail. And those are all the easy problems of consciousness. Of course, they're not easy at all. It's incredibly challenging to figure out how the brain does anything. But they're conceptually easy in the sense that you're just dealing with a complex machine. And the intuition driving this distinction between the easy problem and the hard problem is that even if we solved all the easy problems at the end of neuroscience, 100 years, 200 years, 1,000 years away, the hard problem of why and how any of this should be associated with or generate consciousness would seem just as mysterious and be just as mysterious then as now, that we would make no progress and it would be still this apparently irreducible mystery. So, Anil, coming back to your optimism about, uh, you know, not wanting to just sort of wave away the, the hard problem of consciousness by saying, well, there's some mystical force that, the, that undergirds the entire universe and we are all uh, little examples of the same cosmic uh, conscious experience, but, you know, really getting your, your hands dirty as a, sci as a neuroscientist and trying to understand what's going on. I mean, I would have two responses to that. One is, I don't know enough about the frontiers of neuroscience to understand how the kinds of explanations that you could provide about how consciousness functions inside my head will actually lead to any meaningful explanation or resolution of the hard problem or what that would even look like, what shape that would have. And secondly, I think it's a little bit dismissive of the, the sort of secular version of the Buddhist claim to say that it just explains away the problem because Although it's not scientific evidence, there's a lot of subjective evidence from people's experience of turning down the volume of their own ego and it feeling to them like they're tuning into some conscious experience that's bigger than themselves. 
So whether this is from yogis and, uh, you know, lifelong meditators or whether this is from people on acid trips or, you know, in end of life psilocybin trials or whatever it might be, there's a lot of evidence that there are compounds and habits and practices that can elevate our experience of consciousness into some well, you know, it's hard to take this as evidence, but it's a kind of noetic sort of observation of what what feels like a truth about the nature of our own self-awareness. That let's take that. Take, sorry. Yeah, let's yeah, so jump in on Well, let's take that want. second point first that uh that I may have been a little unfair on this this secular Buddhist view and that there's lots of interesting subjective experiences that people can have in, in these religious spiritual traditions or, or indeed on psychedelics and other things that seem to be evidence. But I think, as you said, but what kind of evidence? Evidence for what? Firstly, I think you're, you're right that there's a, a lot of value to be had in widening our experiential lens to think about take seriously the experiences that that people have in altered states whether it's meditation psychedelics whatever it might be and these are valid states of consciousness and i think considering these states can help remove some of our assumptions about what expression of consciousness in humans must necessarily be like and here again the self comes to mind straight away because well sometimes in deep meditation sometimes on psychedelic compounds people's experience of the self can can be radically different and in some reports even go away entirely now this is i think really interesting for a science of consciousness because it tells us that uh, you know, the self the experience of self is not necessary for consciousness per se it's not necessary for consciousness to happen and we can so we can learn an awful lot and break a lot of our assumptions. But the mistake, at least I think the mistake, would be to take the content of these experiences as evidence for ontologically what is the case. So the fact that somebody, let's say, on a large dose of psilocybin, might feel very strongly that they're plugged into universal consciousness is not evidence for there being a universal consciousness. It's evidence for the possibility of that kind of subjective experience for happening. And I think this is a critical distinction. Let me illustrate it with a with another example, I think is it perhaps a bit easier to, to use, which is out-of-body mm. experiences. So people have had out-of-body experiences for thousands of years. They've been reported in, in different cultures for, for the ages. They're clearly extremely significant to the people that have them. And a typical out-of-body experience might be the experience of suddenly leaving your body, seeing it from the outside, usually from above, and then maybe floating away, moving through space, leaving your body behind. Extremely meaningful. Now, what is that evidence of? You might say, well, this is clearly evidence that there is a soul and it's not dependent on the body because it's left the body and, and off it goes flying around. You could say that, but I think you'd be wrong to draw that conclusion. And the reason you'd be wrong is because it's a confusion of how things seem with how they are. Now, we already know that in our normal experience, the fact that I see a color out there in the world 
doesn't mean that there really is redness out in the world. You know, the redness is in my head. It's not mm. in the world. And so an out-of-body experience, to me, reveals that something we normally take for granted about the self, that there's a first-person perspective that is usually located somewhere behind and between the eyes, that that is actually something that is generated on the fly by the brain all the time. And so it's a part of our experience rather than something that is receiving the experience. And the evidence for that is that we can generate out-of-body experiences artificially. You know, there are reports of people having out-of-body experiences when parts of their brain are stimulated in particular ways. And you can even get versions of out-of-body experiences with clever combinations of virtual reality in the lab. So these different mm. kinds of experiences, it really depends how you look at them. And I think yeah, the most okay. productive way Fair to look at them is, is to challenge our assumptions about what, you know, what, what, con what are we trying to explain when we're trying to explain consciousness rather than taking these things at face value. Yeah, it's a fair enough analogy, uh, and it's uh, it's true that you can't take subjective experiences as being prima facie evidence of something out there in the physical universe. I, I mean, the the distinction that I would make there is that the things that would have to be true about the physical world for out-of-body experiences to be real are fantastical. Uh, we'd have to completely overhaul our understanding of physics and biology. Um, the things that would have to be true for consciousness to be something that we are all living inside some grand experience of are also fantastical, but to me, no more fantastical than what we are required to believe with, in the alternative explanation, which is that particles of exploding stars have aggregated together and these impurities of the cosmos have gathered together on this rock and formed in such a way that they are creating experiences of their own existence that are self-aware and conscious and capable of love and innovation like that so i suppose it depends it's just whether or not the two sides of the of the scales have more or less plausible uh, scenarios. And if you are going to tell me as a neuroscientist that we are close to being able to solve the hard problem of consciousness and give me a satisfactory explanation for how those bits of stars have come together and produced exper the experience of what it's like to be me, then I will happily jettison the secular Buddhist idea of uh, us all being in a, in a conscious soup. But can you do that? that? That's fair enough. And I don't, I can't do that. I don't think anybody can do that just yet. But um, it's, it's, for me, it's more a case of what is the most useful, pragmatically useful strategy to follow. I think it's, it's, it's quite true that you know, the idea that consciousness might suffuse the universe and be fundamental and ubiquitous in some way. I mean, there's a modern school of philosophy called panpsychism, which argues exactly this. And a lot of contemporary philosophers and neuroscientists choose to buy into that framework it's it's as compatible with what we know as the materialistic perspective is and i don't think there's going to be a decisive experiment that's going to separate those two views the question for me is what is going to help us make the most progress in the face of 
of this persisting mystery. And believing that consciousness is somehow everywhere, suffusing everything, and we tune into it, doesn't in practice lead to the kinds of theoretical advances and experiments that help us understand more about the intimate relations that everybody agrees exist between the brain, the body, and consciousness. Right. It's right. a bit of yeah, a makes- it's a bit of a dead end, but it might be true. And and here's so I think as well as optimism, this is I have to you know, give you some optimism, but it's 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 sort of sprinkled over, seasoned with a fair dose of humility as well, because we just don't know. And I, I react myself a little bit badly against people who might overclaim and say, yeah, we, we know or we're there or it's just around the corner. It might be, but it's very hard to tell from where we are now. But what I've seen over the last 20, 30 years and that I've been involved in the field is a lot more is known about how the brain might construct different kinds of experiences, why one experiences one way and another experiences the other way, what we might mean by free will, what we might mean by the self. The questions that we ask about these things have changed as much as the answers. And the driver for these changes in the questions and the answers have been experiments that take pragmatically a materialist perspective. So I think it's mm. it's it's a it's a productive view to take. And then the optimism, there's a historical motivation for the optimism, which is you go back 150 years, and people were very, very pessimistic that life could be explained in terms of physics and chemistry. Now you had this whole philosophy of the time of vitalism, this idea that the difference between the living and the non-living required something extra. It required some spark of life, some elan vital, vital spirit, because materialist stuff just wasn't up to the job. There was a sort of hard problem of life then, as there's a hard problem of consciousness now. But the hard problem of life wasn't solved, and it wasn't sort of explained away by people saying life is just everywhere and certain things tune into it. Now, what happened with life is that biologists of the day, instead of focusing on that single big scary question of the difference between the living and the non-living, what they did was they said, okay, what is it about living systems that we need to explain? Well, they they have metabolism, they have self-regulation, homeostasis, they keep themselves alive or they keep themselves in a, in a steady physiological state. They reproduce, they do all sorts of things. Can we begin to explain those properties? And as they did that, and they found out that they could do that, the hard problem of life began to dissolve. And now, mm. even though we don't understand everything about life, there's, there's no, you know, nobody would say that life is somehow beyond physics and chemistry. Life is a property of physics and chemistry organized in particular ways. And so we now, you know, the the problem is now a different kind of problem. And we ask different kinds of questions. We ask interesting questions about whether viruses are alive, whether we can create synthetic life. And I think, my hope is that consciousness research will follow a similar trajectory, that even though it might seem mysterious now, as we try to explain the different aspects of consciousness, like the experience of self, like the experience of free will, like why is emotion different from vision, then little by little, 
the hard problem of consciousness will seem less hard and less hard and maybe eventually disappear in a puff of philosophical mm. smoke. But even if it doesn't, we'll have learned a lot more along the way by just by following this avenue than by trying to figure out how the brain tunes into a universal consciousness, which I think if we follow that avenue, my bet is we're not really going to get anywhere. Right. That makes a lot of sense. That sort of answers my question about what the contours of a resolution to the hard problem would look like. You're not expecting uh, a eureka moment where a you know an Einstein of the future comes running outside to mix my Archimedes metaphors and uh, screams E equals MC squared. I've got it, and uh, you know all of a sudden we've got an explanation of how the universe produces awareness, and you can put on a T-shirt. You're speculating that the easy problems of consciousness will will get so well resolved that the whole question of how consciousness arises will become moot. That's correct. And in fact, this is why in, in, my, in my own writings, I've tried, rejected this easy, hard problem distinction because the easy problems basically just try to ignore consciousness altogether and say, what can we say about the brain without even using that word? And the hard problem is this single big scary mystery. So I've talked about the real problem of consciousness which is mm. the, which is what you do when you accept that consciousness exists and that it depends on the brain in intimate but still unclear ways. And you take this strategy that people took for understanding life. You say, what are the problems of consciousness, the individual properties of consciousness? How do we explain those, predict when they happen, control them by intervening? And as we do that, then we, will, we stand a chance of dissolving the hard problem but i cannot guarantee that the resolution will be as complete as it has been from life now we may get most of the way yet there might still be some residue of mystery remaining and if that's the case that you know, i also wonder we might ask more of a science of consciousness than we ask of scientific explanations for other things and this might be because consciousness is us you know that that's that's all we are is this ongoing flow of stream of conscious experiences so i think that provides a psychological pressure that we want a scientific explanation of consciousness to really make sense to us to be intuitive and to perhaps reach a higher bar because it has to not only explain something it has to sort of almost constitute us because we are conscious but this is a, you know, it's a misunderstanding of what scientific explanations generally do. I mean, they, they're very good at, or they're considered successful, typically when they explain properties of something and when they can predict when it happens and when they can uh, allow you to intervene and control things. Mm. And we don't, we don't have the same psychological criteria for other things in science that we do for consciousness. This is a suspicion. Well, I'm not I mean, sure I mean, it's true. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I think the big glaring elephant in the room in biology and the study of life, for example, that still motivates a huge amount of religious faith in people <clears throat> is how did life get started in the first place? How did you go from, uh, you know, material inert things to replicating organisms? And because we don't have a fully satisfactory explanation of that first initial trigger of life, um, that remains the sort of God of the gaps hole that people will fill with uh, faith. 
And until that's filled, I think all of I think people will be mildly dissatisfied with all of our exp- explanations of life, no matter how accomplished we are at explaining the details of photosynthesis or you know the vascular system of mammals or whatever. And that may that may also be true with consciousness. We may get better and better and better at explaining how it works, and ultimately, people may remain the layperson may remain mildly dissatisfied by all of that because it doesn't really touch on how or why this all exist in the first place you might be right but i actually think the origin of life is it's, a, it's an extremely good example because it, it's this interesting point in scientific understanding where indeed there's no there's still a gap right we it's still not clear and convincing how we got from the non-living to the living over over history um but what's interesting there is there are there are some emerging ideas which seem to be promising and was it clays self-organizing in a particular way about what about oil droplets that seem to spontaneously form membranes what about the conditions in these undersea vents that, that generate the kind of organic compounds that might be necessary and the more that these these clues come about the less total the mystery seems to be and from my perspective not being involved in this area it doesn't seem to me that there's a massive gap anymore. It seems that it's it's an incompletely understood phenomenon, but not an not something that's totally resistant to being understood. It's just right. very very difficult. Right. And I think that's that. <laughs> I'd be very happy if we get to that kind of position with with consciousness. That yeah, it's yeah. it's still yeah, very difficult, that. but it's it's not no longer something that seems to be totally mysterious and in need of some massive metaphysical or supernatural explanation. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, I, in which case, uh, I suspect that you you are feeling unfailing maligned about people's skepticism towards consciousness research. I think we're just so much earlier in along in our understanding of of how materials come together to to generate a sense of what of, of that it's like something to be me than we are in other fields of science that people feel that it's more fantastical but before i need to go and do a radio show i want us to touch on the the classic 15 year old stoned kids gazing at the night sky talking philosophically about what would it be like if our experience of the color red is actually completely different uh, from each other's and that when I bite into an apple, what I taste is not what you taste, but we both call it the flavor of apple. And how do we know that any of our experiences are actually commensurate? And in some ways, we know that they must not be because we have different tastes. I mean, if I like the taste of caviar and you don't, then what does it even mean to say that we're tasting the same thing when we taste caviar? Because we're having a different experience about it. And this is your latest sort of field of interest and you've got this census which you're putting together about how people perceive the world i I logged on and i tried to do it but i only had a mobile device and you need a desktop to to do it but i'm terribly excited to get involved what what motivates this and what is it it's it is a new project and it's it follows from a basic idea about perception that the what we experience is really the result of the brain's interpretation of a world that is essentially unknowable in, in all its detail. And all the brain gets are these sensory signals, which are only indirectly related to what's actually there. 
and the brain, at least in, in my view and many others, is making predictions about the causes of these sensory signals. And that's what we experience. And because we all have different brains, we're all going to have slightly or maybe quite significantly different experiences, even for the same shared objective reality. So this is this is your example. If we, if we both, if we were in the same city, we walk outside, we look up at the blue sky, we both say there's a sky is blue today, but are we having the same experience of blue? And philosophers have sort of debated this for, for, for a long time, but there's been surprisingly little evidence about it. And so what we wanted to do, and this is a project with, with colleagues, Fiona McPherson in Glasgow and others, to actually measure how different we are on the inside. And it's, it's the one way to think about it is that it's clear we differ on the outside in small ways. We're all different heights and skin colors and body shapes and so on. And we can see these differences because they're just visible externally. It's not clear whether just seeing them makes us behave the way we should, but at least they're, at least they're visible. But differences on the inside are by their nature subjective and private, and they're not visible until they're large enough that they surface into behavior and language. Now, if somebody is really hallucinating and they say they see a gorilla and somebody else doesn't, we know they're having a different experience. But if you and I say, yeah, it's a blue sky, how would we ever know? Plus, our experience seems to directly reflect the world as it is. If I look outside, it seems as though I'm seeing the world just as it is. It doesn't seem like it's a construction of my brain. So that's another reason it's hard for us to appreciate that other people might have different experiences. So this perception census is, a, is an online citizen science project where we're trying to map out the diversity of people's inner experiences, whether it's vision or sound, music, emotion, the passing of time, we all experience the passing of time differently. We want to understand how our inner lives differ from each other and the ways in which they're similar. And so people can can get involved and by signing up to the perception census and we've made it, we try to make it fun, at least as fun as a psychology experiment can be, which is not an amazing amount of fun, but it's it's engaging and, and hopefully informative. And <laughs> Don't say it's not an amazing amount of fun. It's the best fun <laughs> in our world. Listen with the big philosophical conundrums of objectivity uh, and selfhood. I can say compared to other psychology experiments, it's a huge amount of fun. It's <laughs> definitely it's definitely at the top of that scale. But I, I think it is. I think it is. A lot of people have said it's very illuminating uh, because you learn about perception. So you'll learn about how the way you see things hear things relates to, to other people. And by doing this, we'll, we'll really get a map of something that's remained completely hidden or largely hidden up until now. And this is scientifically just a very interesting open question, but I think mm. there's a really important sociological implication here too, because you know, having this, this understanding that the way we see things is partly dependent on the particular conditions of our own brains and bodies gives us a, a certain humility about our perception. And I think that humility, recognizing that other people can literally experience the same thing differently, can be a very useful platform for building empathy and understanding and, and communication among people. Now that's a larger hope, but I think there's something to it. You remember when that 
image of a dress went around the world a few years ago that half the world saw as blue and black and half the world <laughs> saw or, as white and gold. Or, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that was an excellent example because that was a sort of flash in the pan thing, right? It was there, it took off, it went viral, and then it, it disappeared. But what was fascinating about that was how it made people realize exactly this individuality about perception that people could look at the same thing and, and see it in different ways. And I thought there's something really powerful about that psychologically. We're very used to the echo chambers of social media and the fact that if we listen to certain news channels, we're more likely to believe certain things. But beneath these social media echo chambers, I think we also live in perceptual echo chambers. We inhabit distinct worlds perceptually, but we just don't realize that we do. And exposing these, mapping them, and just engendering this recognition that they exist I think will will be very helpful for us in in how we how we interact with other people. At least that's what I'm. That's hoping. interesting. Yes, yes. So that from the subtle empathy of realizing that we don't see exactly the same image of the world, we could engender a broader empathy towards each other's what maybe even political and cultural perspectives. I mean, that might be a stretch, but I, I think it's not impossible. And certainly, I think a, a more immediate goal would be, there's, there's the, the term, I'm sure you and your listeners will have heard the term neurodiversity, which is typically applied mm. to people with conditions like autism and ADHD, but really was intended to, to indicate this fundamental idea that we all differ and that differences are not deficits. But somewhat ironically, the association of neurodiversity as a term with these particular conditions has reinforced the idea that if you don't have one of these conditions then you perceive the world as it is that there is a single neurotypical way of perceiving this was never the intention of the concept but that's how often i think it's come to be understood and so i've been talking more recently about perceptual diversity which is what we try to measure with this perception census as a way to, to recover this original intuition that it's not just differences at the extreme that matter. We're all different. And most of the differences, like in any statistical distribution, you have this kind of bell curve thing. Most of the variance, most of the stuff happening is in the middle and only a little bit of it is happening at the edges. And by focusing only on the edges, you miss all the stuff in the middle but then by recognizing what's going on in the middle, you can relate more easily to what's going on in the edges too. Mm. So that would be a first, a first sort of domain of, of social implication. But fundamentally, we just want to go out and measure this stuff because that's where science often starts. It's, it's like, yep. well, you know, let's find out. Yep. Let's find out what's there. Amazing. A great experiment. I can't wait to be part of it. Anil, it's wonderful to talk to you. If people want to find that that uh, that study perception census is the name uh, which you can google perception census and uh, anil's book is called being you a new science of consciousness uh, great to talk to you anil thank you thank you very much josh it was a pleasure uncomfortable conversations is produced by stefan postuma follow me josh zepps on twitter and instagram for all the latest may your day be fruitful your mind humble your enemies generous and your conversations perfectly sparklingly delectably uncomfortable <laughs>